Well, good morning. My sister Carol's here again this morning. She hadn't been feeling that well for a while, so good to see her here also. She has some evil talents, and uh, one of them is cooking. Sue and I and Bruce all decided we're going to try and lose a little bit of weight, and we've been working on it pretty hard for a while, and so... Carol came by yesterday for because between Sue being out of town and Carol being sick, she never got to celebrate Sue's birthday, so we had a little bit of dessert and cake with it and all that, and I had some. I shouldn't have, but I did. <laughs> and then uh, this morning, I wasn't getting on that scale, <laughs> but Bruce sent a message from, from upstairs. He texts from upstairs to the downstairs. <laughs> he lost weight. <laughs> Sue got on the scale, and... She's lost weight. So I thought, you know, well, the cupbearer and, and, the, and the baker, I started feeling like the baker. They got good news, maybe I'll get good news. It was the baker. <laughs> if you don't know the story, you'll go have to read it. So. All right. Found favor among the people. I've never been one of these people who really likes to stand out in the crowd. I don't know about you, but uh, I don't. That's just not ever really been me. Uh, if the boss comes to visit at work and some, you know, big VP or whatever else, and they walk by me and they say, hi, Mr. Kerfman, or hi, Mark. I'm like, how do you know my name? And I don't appreciate it. I, I wasn't ever looking for a big promotion. I wasn't ever, I was just wanting steady employment. That's all I really wanted. Uh, when I'm at the airport, I don't like to draw attention to myself. You know what happens when you draw attention to yourself at the airport? <laughs> Snapping on gloves. Uh. And while everybody else is getting on the airplane first, you're still repacking your suitcase and all that. You know, uh, I made the mistake of standing out one time in Paris, and boom, they got me. I went through the line with all the, well, actually looked like a bunch of terrorists. <laughs> so, so anyhow, I don't like to stand out in the crowd. And you don't either, not really, you know, and, and sometimes we feel like we do, but we don't. And, uh, you know, when you come out with bold new styles of clothing, I don't want to make a huge, bold statement. Usually let somebody else make it first and I'll follow along. Most of the time when your kids go out and they get the latest fashion, they're not really wanting to stand out from the crowd. Now they may not want to be a part of your crowd, but they definitely want to fit in with their own herd and do what everybody else is going to fit in. And if we do want to stand out from the crowd, it's only because whatever the crowd wants, we want the best of it, the biggest of it, the greatest of it, the latest of it. So you want those latest Nikes that have come out. Have you actually seen some of the latest Nikes? I don't know how you're running them. Uh, you want, you know, the latest cell phone, the biggest SUV. And we go out of our way sometimes to not stand out among the crowd. And as a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons I don't cut my own hair. I don't really want to stand out from the crowd. <laughs> uh, and you probably didn't want to wear your sister's hand-me-downs, especially if your name was Lowell. But uh, we don't want to stand out for the wrong reason. Uh, you know, remember the Edsels, if you're old enough? No, you know, nobody wanted an Edsel. And, and, you know, you know, one of the cheapest vehicles that you can buy that's really a good vehicle and it lasts a long time? A hearse, a used hearse. But you don't want that unless you're a Ghostbuster. You don't want to stand out from the crowd. We like to fit in. 
even if it's just our own crowd. And there's exceptions. I mean, I, I had a friend in college. She wore clogs, wooden clogs. And you could hear her from one end of campus to the other end of campus. She liked this. And for me to be her friend and just walk across campus with her, man, I had to join the parade. You know, and especially when you got in the long hallway inside a building, boy, did that make some noise. But most of us don't want to do that. We want to be a part of everything. We want to be just like everybody else. So when it comes to the church, you got to ask the question, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to fit into the world? Are we trying to hide from the world? And the same goes for you as an individual believer. What is your goal? Do you fit in? Do you hide? Most of us don't want to be a spectacle. We want to fit in. We like to not even be noticed. It's kind of just human nature. And because of that, sometimes somebody will tell a joke that you shouldn't laugh at, you should walk away from, but we'll just kind of stand there and smile. We won't do anything different. Uh, Sometimes we dress like everybody else does. We act like everybody else does. We walk alike. We talk alike. Sunday mornings, we sneak off to church and maybe nobody will notice. Because if it wasn't for that Sunday morning little departure from the rest of the way, who would ever notice that we were different than them? So for about an hour or so, we kind of sneak away from the world. We don't, you know, we do our own thing. And if somebody finds out that you go to church, you know, what do they say? You, of all people? You know, or what do you do? You say, well, you want to make sure that they know that you're, you're really not that different, that you're not strange, that you're not, you're, you're not weird. You're just like them. You just have to go to church once a week. So don't worry about me. I'm okay. You know, the fact that I'm a Christian, you know, and it, it's, I always thought it was amazing. If, if somebody knew I was a lineman, that didn't seem to bother them. But I've been at so many occasions where one of you friendly people will inv- introduce me to your friends as a preacher. You ought to see how quiet it gets all of a sudden. And how one by one they start excusing themselves. We want to fit in. Or maybe you're that person who rejects the world so much you have spiritual clogs. You, know, you go out of your way to be offensive. Your faith forms a wedge between you and everyone else. When they see you come and they scatter. They have a code word for you. Do you know that? It's called forest. You understand that? Run, forest, run. <laughs> There's a passage in the book of Acts. It's always caught my attention. In the early days of Christianity, right when the church is forming... The apostles have been preaching, the people are believing, they're being baptized in huge numbers. Back then, baptism wasn't a discussion. Not everybody accepts, not everybody obeys. In fact, as you go through the book of Acts, you can tell by the time you get to the end, the majority of Jerusalem still stands firm against the church. But Luke makes this statement, and he's talking about the church. He says, day by day, they continue with one mind in the temple breaking bread from house to house, and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, and here's the words, here's the line I want you to see, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number. There was something about this group that people even outside of the group, outside of the church, saw and they admired, not everybody, but the church of the book of Acts had a good reputation. Later on, we have the death of Ananias and Sapphira, and and Luke makes a statement here that it almost sounds like he's contradicting himself, because after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, you know, we talk about church discipline. 
but after the death of him, it says this, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. It almost sounds like a contradiction when he says that. But what he's basically saying is not everybody wanted to be a Christian. There are the people who actually were against the church, enemies of the church. But in general, they held the church in high esteem. The church had a reputation, and it was a good one. They weren't closet Christians. At the same time, they weren't firebrands that went around making trouble wherever they went. They might have been accused of that for, from time to time, especially if you are a silversmith and you're making idols and you watched your sails go down. But they weren't trying to offend or, or confront people. At the same time, they openly shared their faith. They openly practiced it in their community. And it wasn't that they rejected the people of the world. They rejected the ways or the path of the world. Paul says it like this over in 1 Corinthians. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with any immoral person. I did not mean a, a, with the immoral people of this world or the covetous or swindlers or idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. And if you know 1 Corinthians 5, there's a guy in the church that's doing t- things that just cannot be done in the church. And he says, you don't associate with people like that. You don't even eat with them. Don't give them any hint or sign that I'm okay and you are too because you may be okay, but they aren't. So he says, I told you, don't associate with nasty people of this world because I'm not talking about the world in general. We don't have rocket ships yet. This is the first century. He says, you don't associate with evil in the church. At the same time, here's the way Jesus spoke about it in his prayer. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now, most of us would like to stop right there and not read that next line that I put my hand over, but it's already on your screen. Because he says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. If you're like me, there's days that you'd like to find a mountain and climb up there and just stay. I actually openly discussed this around the dinner table on a regular basis. I don't want to go too far up the mountain. I still want to be in the Uber Eats network and not too far from the Amazon delivery place. But just get away from everything and and not be there anymore. The problem is that you and I are made for the world. We as Christians are made for this world. We may be separated from the ways of this world. We don't hide. We don't fit in. We don't scorn. We walk as light. Light among darkness. Let your light shine before men in a way that they will see. What will they see? Your attitude, your preaching. They will see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. That brings us to the really tough question. How do you do that? How do we become that light in this dark world? How do we live like Christ? Well, the first big answer, I guess, is we share our faith. You don't hide the fact you're a Christian. You openly speak for God. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a teacher or a preacher or a scholar. You don't have to debate people. I'm not telling you to go out and knock doors. I'm not telling you you can't. 
But I really do think the first step we have to do is we need to be out among people on a regular basis. Not in a monastery, not in a commune, not, you know, hiding. You know, there were so many of those people in the first century. There's so many different weird groups that were out there, religious groups. Essenes are one of my favorite ones. That They're kind of mysterious. We don't know a lot about them. What we do know about them is they said, we're holy, the world isn't, we can't live with them. So they went out to the desert and lived. Not sure how that worked out for them. Worked out great for us. We got all those Dead Sea Scrolls. But we live among the people. We have to be open, friendly, speak. Here's a tough one. We have to listen to people. And always be ready to tell them a little bit about yourself. Especially about your faith. Don't make that the topic that you never bring up for fear of what the result will be. Because you should bring it up with the hope of what the result might be. Always be ready. Just, even if you just invite somebody to church. You'll, the world's changed in a lot of ways today from years ago. And although we can still go out there, we can knock doors, we can put up bulletin boards or banners or, or billboards or whatever else. Uh, the world's changed in a lot of ways. And so we try to make a way where we can bring people into us. Invite them. It's okay. We don't mind. Some people will keep aloof. Some people will gravitate. But if we are actually doing what they did in the first century, that's the problem. If we're doing what they did in the first century, we should be admired by the world. Now, I know you can come up with all kinds of, yeah, but, uh, what if, uh, no, let's just do what they did in the first century. And I, when I'm saying that, I'm not talking to any huge group, I'm talking to this group. If we are just not that little funny brick building you drive by at 55 miles an hour, but if we are people that constantly are speaking, constantly are serving, constantly are reaching out, constantly are working, people will admire us. It'll change. And so that brings us to the second part, not just speaking a word for Jesus, but serve. Be known as a people who help. Be known as a people who serves. Be known as a people who reaches out to the community. And you think, well, you know, we're just supposed to preach the gospel. Well, when you read what was going on in the book of Acts, look what it says here. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. And we're all the way down in chapter 5 now. To such an extent that they even carried out their sick onto the street and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least the shadow, his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities and the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Now, I understand there's a problem there that you're going to see immediately. You're going to say, well, they had the power of the Holy Spirit back then. Peter could walk by somebody. His shadow could fall on them, and they would be healed. Remember, Paul, later on, it talks about him. They carried, well, I think my Bible translation says handkerchiefs. I don't know if they had handkerchiefs in the first century, but they would carry a cloth from that, that had been in Paul's possession to a sick person. They'd be healed. He said, we don't have that today. We don't have that. I realize that. But notice what this verse is really saying beyond that. They were known to be a people who cared about the problems of society. The church became known as a place where people cared, where people helped, 
and where people served. We might not be able to, you know, take, you know, one of Frank's, you know, handkerchiefs and carry them to somebody, get them healed. But are we known as a people who care, who help, who serve? And we really do need to be such a people. We need to ask ourselves, and as a church, how is it that you and I can be blessings to other people? And it's not so much in giving somebody whatever they ask for. I understand some of the problems with that. But seriously looking around and seeing what's needed and doing what is needed. And, you know, charity, benevolence, whatever it is. Now, personally, you know, I, my logic, I prefer to find the target of my service rather than me be the target of somebody's wants. Yeah, you tend to get taken advantage of quite a ways there. And, and that's not even bad to be taken advantage of, but... I've only got 24 hours a day, and my wallet is only so deep. And I'd hate for those things to be drained completely when a real need and an honest need came my way. But still, because only one leper comes back and thanks you for what you did, we don't stop loving lepers. We keep on keeping on. When I tell you all these things, I kind of feel like a guy that's covered in dirt telling you how to clean up your act. So the question is, where do we start? And you can hear expressions sometimes like, you know, what is God calling you to do? And I, I, quen- I have a rough time with a statement like that because man can enter into that statement real quick, can he? Because I can say, well, God called me to do this, and it's really just something I wanted to do. And I've heard extremes of, of examples in this, and I won't even repeat them for you because they're not appropriate. But at the same time, although... I don't know that I can make a prayer at night and in the morning wake up and find out exactly what God's calling me to do. I do believe God is calling us to work. and He's calling us to ministry. So I cautiously say yes. Of course, we have to do a lot of soul searching, prayer, Bible study, and actually even work to find out exactly what that will be. It's time for us that we as God's light and darkness take a serious look at the word of God and we take a serious look at the needs around us and our own <laughs> abilities and we seek to do what God wants us to do. First and foremost, what is it that God wants us to do? I think God wants us to share the gospel above and beyond all things else. That's not discounting anything else. But, you know, this passage that you have on the screen, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I understand that when Jesus said that, he was talking to people who were seeking all the things of the world instead of seeking God first. But at the same time, if our ministry is all materialistic, answering the whims and the wants of the physical world, in the end... What does a man profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I've always had a little bit of a problem with mission work where they go out and build schoolhouses and build church buildings. It's not a bad work and everything, but it's so hard to get somebody to go and preach the gospel. But if it, with the lay bricks, or more than willing to do, maybe we're just more comfortable with that. But, you know, I've seen people in India, they have bricklayers. And in South America, they have bricklayers. Now, maybe we need to give them the bricks. Maybe we need to be there for the fellowship. But when we don't take care of the soul, what have we actually given them? At the same time, I am fully aware that we must also be aware of of the physical needs and, and the way people look. 
Because James says it like this. He goes, what, what kind of faith is it when you see a brother without clothing in need of food, and you say, go in peace, be warm and filled, but you don't give him what is necessary for the body? Sometimes there are other ways besides just handing out a Bible to show the world that we care. We have to meet the soul on the path that, the, that they're on, not just necessarily the path we want them to be on. In the end, though, we could go on and on. And, and I think as a church, we need to look into these things and say, what will we be known for in this community? How will we get our, remember what he's talked about in Sunday school, propaganda out there among the world? And if that word scares you, you should have been in Sunday school. <coughs> but how will we do that? And so there are so many different ways, so many different ministries, so many different, but it takes one thing before we start any of these things. Before we start any of this, we have to have a message that we share with people. We have to have a message that comes not from our mouth, not from our ministry, but from our heart. Because I think if we don't have the heart of God in the first place, everything else is just meaningless, busy work. Good on the outside, dead on the inside. And in the end, we're not about projects, we're not about quotas, and we're not about works. There's a word in the New Testament, it's used all over the place, but it's, it's the word provoke. And it's kind of interesting, because when you read in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, love is not easily provoked. He goes, that shouldn't describe us that people can provoke us to do the wrong thing, do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. You know, you hear this statement, you made me do it, it's your fault, you provoked me. Paul says, no, 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 we don't allow for that in the church. But at the same time, when you go into Acts chapter 17, Luke uses this exact same word to describe Paul's attitude. And Paul is in Athens. And it says his spirit was being, what's the word? Provoked within him as he was observing all the, the city full of idols. Maybe go to the story, what's going on is Paul and, and his team are going city to city preaching the gospel. And Paul goes ahead of everybody else. He gets there first. A lot of times when Paul gets there first, what he does is he goes and he, you know, he goes to the work depot and he gets in line. And, well, he was a tent maker. He'd find ways to make money and wait for the rest of the team to catch up. But he's, before that campaign starts, he looks at the state of affairs in Athens and he can't stand it. He sees the lies. He sees the hope, hopelessness. He says, sees the desperation, and he cannot contain himself. He had to speak. He had to love. He had to offer hope. That's the kind of provoking that we need. The kind where it comes from a heart that says, I see what's there, and I can't help myself. Now, if this is just a system of, of works to, to go to heaven, uh, you'll never be provoked to do a good thing for God. But if you're reflecting the heart of your Savior, we see this really, you know, in the life of so many people. Young King Saul, you know, he, Gideon, Samson, David, the Spirit of God stirred in their souls and they could not help but act. Go back and read those stories. Something's going on and it's like the Spirit of God is in them and they just can't contain themselves. And so then they act on the behalf of God. It's the Spirit of God in you in a way that provokes you to do what's right. Or do you quench the Spirit? 
Jesus is a good example. I didn't go through all of his miracles, but just looked at a couple of them and brought them here for you. Jesus healed a man, his eyesight. Jesus touched a man and healed him. But look how it starts. Moved with compassion, he touched their eyes. Moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him. In other words, it's not that Jesus was looking at this and going through the motions and trying to check off a list and a rule book. His heart just couldn't help himself. He just had to do what he did. And so finally we get to the church. And Paul tells us this. He says, let us not lose heart in doing good. Now we can look at that expression and say, well, you know, don't wear out. Don't get too tired of doing it. But I like the way he describes it. Don't lose heart in doing what's good. In other words, it starts with our hearts. Do we actually even care that there's a lost world out there? You know, I, sometimes when I say prayers and nobody says amen, I kind of get a little insulted. But then I notice I don't say amens too many times. Uh, boy, I should have said amen about ten times in this morning's prayer. Do we lose heart in doing good? Well, we must not. We'll reap a reward if we don't grow weary. So while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are the household of faith. We're starting a building over here, and we're doing it for a lot of different reasons. We're doing it because some people are doing it just because we want more bathrooms. Some are saying we're, we're, we kind of get to that 80% capacity, which kind of cuts things off. We need a little bit bigger room. Some people think if we build a building, we can be like that, what was that, baseball movie? If you build it, they'll come. It doesn't work that way. Not in real life. In Hollywood, maybe, but not in real life. They will come when we go out to the highways and the byways. They will come when we bless them. They will come when we serve them. They will come when we become that light and that shines in the darkness. And I've seen too many, that, there's a, one of the particular congregations in Romania we'll be going to in about a month. And they keep thinking, if we just had a building instead of this rented room, we'd be filling it up. <clears throat> I don't think so. But if they will go out to the highways and the byways, if they will serve, if they will preach, if they will teach, if they will embrace, if they will listen, I think that's when they come. We need to show the world the heart of God. And I really, truly, when you watch the news and you think how terrible things are becoming, yeah, you know, maybe it's just a new form of terrible from the old form of terrible that we had 50 years ago. Yes, they are. What you're seeing, though, is desperation. What you're seeing is hopelessness. And we need to show the heart of God to a world that desperately is seeking for hope. <coughs> it starts within us. It starts within our hearts. And then we let our heart shine. This morning, the invitation is here. It, it started, as far as I know, about 150 years ago. Some of those old... You know, campaigns they started, Billy Sunday, whoever. I don't really recall anywhere in the church ever having an invitation song for over a thousand years. But the invitation from the beginning of the church now has always been open. That if you are seeking God and you are ready to change, 
we're here to help you, to teach you. And we always keep that water. So you can start your life anew by dying to the world and being buried in baptism and raised to the newness of life. Whatever you need, we ask you to come now as we stand and as we sing. There's a stranger at the 